This week on the Faculty Factory Podcast. He talks about how each of us really is married to our relationships, our key relationships, to our work and to ourselves. And the idea is how do we keep those in conversation with each other? They're not separate commitments, but they're different ways of expressing how we belong in the world, right? So it's the concept of balance, I've never found that useful, and he really helped me understand why I never found that useful, <laughs> because each of these commitments that we have to ourselves, to our work, and to our, our key significant others, they're non-negotiable. everybody, welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. On today's episode, we have Janet Bickle. Janet has about 45 years experience in academic medicine and science with more than 125 academic health centers around the country and 35 professional societies having invited her to come talk with them. Those of you who have not had the experience, a wonderful experience of listening to Janet, learning from her, today's conversation will really, um, I think, be a great one for you. Her expertise is in organizational career and leadership development. So, Janet, welcome to the Faculty Factory Podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you. Thank you. This is going to be so much fun. Well, for one thing, the older you get, and I'm turning 70 this year, uh, the more fun it is to talk about yourself. (laughs) <laughs> oh, my. Okay. That's good. Good to know. So I'm just still amazed that 45 years experience in academic medicine and science. And and I think I kind of, the audience, if they listened to my interview with Daryl Kirch, they heard me mention you and how we had just had you come to speak at our junior faculty leadership program. And the wisdom that you share with our group on things like courageous presence and how to communicate effectively in this uh, environment today. The, the, everything you shared was just so uh, relevant and spot on. And I just, I just am amazed that for 45 years you've been in the meat of all this. So I was hoping you could tell us how you got started and um, your eye and your frame and the way you've looked at faculty development and academic affairs over the past 45 years? Well, thanks, thanks, Tim. And I really appreciate the invitation to reflect back. And as Daryl said, and as many of you have experienced, you didn't start out with a plan. Um, I thought I wanted to teach English in high school. And when I graduated from college in 1971, I couldn't find a job anywhere, but I needed a job as soon as possible. So I took a secretarial job, which happened to be at Brown University. And I was just about to go crazy from boredom. And fortunately for me, the new medical school was just opening up. And I got to be the founding admissions financial aid student affairs director there. So I learned about medical education from the students who came into my office. Um, And when I left there, I was very fortunate to get a job at the Association of American Medical Colleges. And that background at Brown, which was was a new program, small, experimental, 
and I learned so much about medical education, and it turned out to be the perfect preparation for a career, a 25-year career at AAMC, and my first major job at AAMC was to staff the Organization of Student Representatives, where I also got to know almost every single student affairs admission and financial aid director and dean in the country, and also I got to attend the Council of Deans meetings and got to know a, a lot of chairs, and so I really got a good foundation. And then about 10 years into that, I was fortunate uh, to be present when the president at the time, Robert Petersdorf, decided to fund the Women in Medicine program. And so I was hired into what was then called the Division of Institutional Planning and Development, and I had that 50%. And then the other 50% was for general faculty things, and that turned into the birth of the GFA because it was just around that time that some of the leaders in the country who were working on faculty affairs and faculty development started to knock on AMC's doors and say, hey, we need staffing. <laughs> we do a lot of work. A lot is changing. A lot is getting harder. The deans aren't able to fully... Um, aren't fully equipped to do what they what needs to be done for faculty, and neither are the chairs. And so let's start the group. And so that was the beginning in 19, it was 1990, and uh, that was how we, we started the, the birth of the GFA that I was very privileged to be present for. Now, what's, what specific skill set did you bring to this Position, um, especially the new women's office. Yeah. And how did you? How did you um, decide or you know, determine that this was a, a fit for you? When I left AMC, then after 25 years to start my own business, and I primarily did that because I wasn't seeing a, a next place to go at AAMC for me, and I knew that I needed more autonomy and to keep growing myself, that it was the bigger risk to stay in this terrific job um, than, it, than it was to leave and try to learn some new skills. So that's why I started my own business as a leadership and career development coach back in uh, 2003. But when at my going away um, event uh, at AMC, it really hit me that that one of the main reasons I was able to contribute so much there, in addition to just the good timing that I mentioned of being present at the uh, when they were looking for somebody to, to start these new activities, is that I had worked in a medical school, number one, and a lot of I was amazed at how few AMC staff had actually worked in a medical school. And the other main uh, trait is that I was so curious about medical education and the complexity of it that I took every opportunity to learn from the constituents, to interact with the constituents, and so I got to learn firsthand what their issues and needs were, and so that's part of how I came to write the first paper, um, peer-reviewed paper on um, the changing faces of promotion and tenure uh, in the in 1990, and I was the first one to actually write an article about part-time faculty, and I called that committed to full professional effort because I still have yet to meet an actual part-time physician because they work usually more hours than the average 
<laughs> American. Yeah. And we also did the first uh, studies on, on parental leave policy. And with Paige Moorhan, the great Paige Moorhan, as first, first author, I was also part of the team that created the um, first article on the status of faculty affairs and faculty development office. Um, which has since been, you know, greatly expanded and, and uh, improved, that, that kind of study. So it was so great to be able to get in on the ground floor, and I wouldn't have been able to do that if I hadn't really kept my ear to the ground. <laughs> so, so you know, I've, as you've traveled around the country, as I mentioned earlier, all these invitations you've been getting and speaking yeah. at all these professional societies, what... Do you, can you reflect on a couple things that have been either consistent issues over 45 years in the field uh, or <laughs> things that have recently popped up that kind of stick in your mind? You now, trying to think of the folks out there who are listening to this interview as they're, they're new to the field or even some of us who've been around for a while. Um, what have you noticed? What a great question. It's hard to know where to start. I guess what's first in my mind is the greater recognition now of how unlevel the playing field is for uh, underrepresented minorities and women um, and other types of minorities, too. And the tendency um, or it seems to be a natural human tendency that when we succeed, we, we have the feeling that we do so on our own merit. And now there's a greater appreciation for how many different systems and cultural issues affect anyone's ability to achieve their potential. And the greater we understand that as leaders and can adapt to the system, improve the systems, and the greater individuals, especially younger people, can understand that, yeah, I may have to work harder, and yeah, there's lots of different kinds of unconscious bias out there, and I need to adapt to the realities, and I need to get more skills than perhaps some of my white male colleagues, you know, have to get. And rather than letting that become a resentment or a barrier, to actually accept that is that just part of the reality. Um, we don't really even as a culture, and I don't think we've come very far in this regard over 45 years, have a good language for talking about these issues because nobody thinks they're biased. <laughs> None of us have ever seen equity, right? In a capitalistic hierarchical society, there really isn't any such thing as equity. It's a great great uh, idea and value, and we have to keep working toward it, but we don't see a vivid example of it. So that subject will never go away. You know, in our lifetime, we'll always need to keep working toward what differences are important, how do we talk about them, how do we develop practice systems um, such that everybody can reach their potential, that nobody's locked out. So, so I'm progress. Okay, can you tell us now more about this? You mentioned that we certainly those those uh, faculty members who find themselves in that unequal playing field, and you know, I always talk about the you know the the starting gate. If you think of a racetrack, um, mm -hmm. it's you know some people are just starting way back further, and um, it's it's not equal. So. 
and recognizing, okay, I'm way back here at, um, I'm, you know, X people deep in this and I'm going to have to work harder, as you suggested, you know, figuring out how to work harder or smarter or better. So in addition to that and recognizing that the, the person has to work harder, what can we do as leaders to help the person at the person level be more resilient and identify ways to excel and also address the organizational or cultural limitations. And I think all faculty affairs deans and and uh, uh, developers do this. You know, you're all leader leading from the middle. You're all trying to develop relationships with the chairs and with the deans, such that they. Um, rely, can rely on you as having all that wisdom of what's going on (laughs) at the ground floor because you are the ones that are most in touch with the issues that individual faculty are grappling with, you know, faculty at all levels um, because certainly junior faculty face (laughs) different issues than the the mid-career and the senior faculty. And mentoring, all the mentoring programs, all the boot camps, that you're helping to create and support the leadership development programs. I think all of those feed into junior faculty appreciating that they are the CEOs of their own careers, that they have to accept responsibility for learning what it takes. And all of us can keep getting better as mentors, can't we? Having an appreciation for um, to meet the people where they are you know, rather than based on, well, I didn't face this, so, you know, it's not an issue or it's solved. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so it's one of the huge under-appreciated uh, roles, I think, that the faculty affairs and faculty development people play, the bridge builders, right? Right. Yeah. And Tell so us about some, some the- other, other things you've... Um- you touch on and during your trainings and what are you asked to come and talk about over and over oh, and over again? It's, it's wonderful how, how that morphs and, and changes <laughs> um, for a while there. And in part, it was because I was the first, uh, I think, person to, uh, to publish on the subject of bridging generational differences and worrying about whether academic medicine was eating its its seed corn, its junior faculty, by um, burning them out. That's still a current issue. But I'm not. All, I think now that that faculty are more accustomed to figuring out how to reach millennials and how to create the kind of uh, structures that are necessary in order to help them understand um, how to become professional. I'm not asked to to speak about that so much anymore. Kind of similarly with mentoring. Um, my office was one of the first places where we started making resources available to at, one, at the AMC um, to deans and chairs that wanted to get mentoring programs started. And, and I think that even though that field will never stop maturing, I think now we're, we have a greater understanding of, for instance, the difference between sponsorship and mentorship, which is important. Um, but that, that's something I'm not often as asked now. Um, since I just finished, uh, just published uh, this article that was 
that's in Journal of Women's Health called Organizational Savvy, Critical to Career Development in Academic Medicine. I'm really excited about this article because, again, I, I haven't seen anything in the literature that's written for junior faculty on organizational politics yeah. because... Yeah. Well, I was just you know. going to say, I know you. I want everybody to understand that you have more than 65 peer-reviewed publications and a couple of books. And so I thought this might be a perfect opportunity. Can you maybe share with us, like, one of the ones you're yeah. most proud of or something that you... Yeah, well, this one, this one, and actually it was the hardest one I've ever written to get published. I know everybody faces challenges getting their scholarly work published, but I was, uh, you know, I just kind of got to say, I was amazed that academic medicine didn't even review it when I, didn't even send it out for review when I sent it to them, and I was really disappointed because having traveled all over the country for all these years and listened to junior faculty talk about how challenging it is to build a career, as you all know, you know, how how many challenges there are, one of them that, that nobody, hardly anybody ever talks about and there's no resources on is organizational politics. It's so sensitive. It's so complex. Um, as you know, I mean, academic medical centers are the most complex organizations in the world because of the competing missions. And you throw in the hierarchy, you throw in questions of sexism and racism and and just, the, you know, all the burnout issues. I mean, we're talking about something that's really com- a career that is really complex to build. And so that's why I uh, wrote this article, it, because it's rarely discussed as a learnable skill. And if you have a great mentor who will help you learn the ropes and learn everything that they learned about how to manage organizational politics, how to build relationships, interpret how decisions get made in the organization, um, that's one thing. But as we all know, you know, very few people have uh, one-on-one mentoring like that over a period of years that they can really trust that the mentor has their best interest at heart the whole time. So um, I also am hoping that, that this article will be a resource for mentors who are trying to coach their junior faculty in organizational politics mm-hmm. and organizational staffing. Well, through your coaching, what kind of um, common pitfalls or mistakes do you see people make around organizational politics? Well, especially for for women, um, the naivete, really, that hard work will ensure success. Mm. And, and it really is uh, naivete. Um, that's where the, the gap between... Salary uh, begins the uh, the uh, gender gap immediately after the education process is over, um, and uh, Cheryl Sandberg actually called this the tiara syndrome. That young women imagine that if they work hard, they'll get rewarded. <laughs> Whereas what we know is that you have to negotiate, you have to be prepared to negotiate, which is an art form in itself. And again, unless you've had really good mentoring, um, you're not likely to be well prepared for that first negotiating opportunity when you first uh, are negotiating your first job. And so the inequity usually begins there with with women tending to underestimate themselves still. Mm -hmm. 
even with access to equal education, we still find that. And that's a very complex sociologic and probably hormonal <laughs> uh, challenge, you know, but we have a we still have a long way to go in helping women achieve their potential right from the starting gate mm. um, in that regard. So another another aspect that is I think under addressed are that that uh, junior faculty face at the beginning is discovering who to trust because we can't be over-dependent on a boss or a mentor. We have to develop relationships with multiple people. The more, the better, really, in terms of learning about trends that affect us, about how to get things done. And since there's so little time, you know, there's so much time pressure at the beginning um, and making smart moves about how to divide your energy at the beginning is so important. Um, it's difficult to know sometimes about how to go about developing those relationships. And so that's, that's one of the areas that I talk about in my article, too. Mm. I, I like not that a lot. It, and not leaving it to Brownie in motion, you know, <laughs> in terms of developing those relationships across the institution and across your profession within your professional society is critical. I'm sure there's a book about this, and I don't know, um, or maybe you know it, but the idea of asking like seven whys, why, why, uh-huh. why, why, why. We were talking in our in our leadership um, class on Wednesday. Um, two of our my my colleagues, Dr. David Usum and Jennifer Haythornthwaite, uh, were talking about mentorship, and Jennifer was telling the group. Uh, it was, it was about asking questions and, and opening up dialogue. That was it. She was talking about it's important as mentees that we create space in a conversation to have dialogue to understand how the other person is thinking. And that so often we always, we kind of hit um, topics or look for evidence to confirm what we already believe or to validate my own thinking. And we, we underestimate the importance of just saying, can you tell me what you're thinking Um, about that? Or how do you think about this? Or you suggested I do A, B, or C. I was actually thinking about E, F, and G. And and I'm curious how you're thinking about that. And so I like what, you know, what you're saying is that a reminder of like why the, the, the childish kind, not childish or childlike curiosity as you mentioned back in you know, early in your career, being curious, the curiosity of, hmm, I wonder, I'm wondering how you got to that point. How did you, how did you make that decision? And that learning about organizo- organizational culture by being curious and creating dialogue to help you as a mentee understand the thought processes of other people. Boy, it's so important what, what you just said. And, and that's why one of my all-time favorite books is called Humble Inquiry by uh, Ed Schein, S-C-H-E-I-N. All, all of his work has been, as an organizational development expert, has been so useful to me. But this book is a small book, and uh, it just has so many great examples of creating dialogue, just what you said. Wow. Humble Inquiry. 
we all need to get better at it because that's how we learn to bridge differences. It's also how we learn to get more information, the kind of information we need to be good negotiators, good mentors, good delegators, right? And for some reason, it doesn't come naturally to a lot of us. And even physicians who might be, and most of them are, terrific in patient care setting. They know how to ask the questions they need to ask in order to get the information they, and to build a relationship um, with the, the, the patient. Um, but you put them in a situation <laughs> with their boss or with a colleague who's challenging them, and they almost forget that mm. they know how to ask the kind of questions that will lead to dialogue, you know, because we tend to defend ourselves in those situations rather than to, to access our curiosity, as you say. Yeah. So, yeah, really important. But you really know, important. one thing that you said earlier also made me, you know, realize that about who can I trust. You know, you said that the hard part is trying to understand who can I trust, and I think we can yeah. we can help help bridge that. Uh, uncertainty by making sure we we surround ourselves with teams of mentors and teams of leaders. Yeah. And I can't help but think that sometimes when I, maybe when I'm not curious or when our faculty are a little bit like, as you said, kind of like deer in the headlights, they kind of lose or forget their ability to be curious is because there's fear there mm-hmm. because they feel, we feel sometimes threatened or you know, our, mm-hmm. our base, our most base fears of, oh my gosh, um, that, that person doesn't believe in me or thinks I'm or wrong or maybe thinks I'm... fear of inadequacy, I yeah. think. And that's why the work of Brene Brown is so important because she really writes about vulnerability and how it all starts there. And the greater we, the more we understand about that, the better because it's, <laughs> even though in order to admit error, which is so important for us all to be able to do because we're human and everybody makes mistakes. The the way that things are set up in academic medicine, you know, that feeling of vulnerability is naturally we avoid it. You know, we do whatever we can to not feel that way or to not let other people feel, you know, assume that we're vulnerable. And so it's very difficult then to have the kind of conversations that are important that will allow people to be authentic and and get to know each other as human beings, which is the base of trust, right? It takes time, but it also takes that ability to be authentic. And my main recommendation on on this is to just be careful not to write anybody off. You know, it's it, we tend to like either it's an either or, but it's not binary. It's learning under what conditions somebody is trustworthy <laughs> because we're all so interdependent. We usually don't have the um, luxury of saying, I'm never going to listen to that person again, right? right. <laughs> we have to work with them. <laughs> we have to figure out under what conditions they're trustworthy. Yeah. And we all have blind spots, you know, so it's getting to know our own, and we get to know our own through other people, through asking for feedback, and through being curious about, um, as you and Daryl were talking about, what are my strengths? What am I really good at? What do I want to do more of? You know, being curious in that reflective way, too. And 
And uh, I'll use that as a bridge to another concern that we all share is the the burnout. I mean, there is a a built-in expectation of overcommitment of physicians and faculty, Mm. right? Our cultures, which leads to fatigue. And when we're fatigued, we can't think of good questions. We can't even pay attention, you know, to what somebody's talking about. And so it's um, really a challenge. And I would say in my coaching work, that's the most persistent challenge that I found is that even people who really want to learn the skills, you know, why they've, why they've called on me to begin with, they often don't have the time. Oh. You know, just even setting aside an hour every two weeks it gets encroached upon because everything else is more important than building in time for yourself. That's the message that right. faculty get. And so that time for reflection, uh, much less coaching, is, is the most difficult and to, to find. And, and as I wrote in, in the other article that I'm the most proud of, which is on, on mid-career faculty that was in academic medicine, a couple of years ago, not too late to reinvigorate how mid-career faculty continue growing. Um, the first thing that faculty must do when they reach a point where they're not sure where where do I want to go next, you know, that reassessment that is so normal for all of us at some point in our career development because there's no path that goes all the way, is to set aside time for reflection. Um, and whether that looks like a lengthened vacation or a week off after a leadership development program or what, you know, what have you, it's absolutely necessary to take that backpack off and put it on the ground <laughs> and see what it feels like to breathe completely and then look in the backpack and see what's in there and what doesn't need to be there anymore. You know, what responsibilities have you taken on that you can reassess? I wanted to offer the group some, one thing I I offer my clients at the end of every uh, calendar year is reflection questions. And I think these these are some of my favorite reflection questions that I find are multi-purpose. One is, what do you understand or have a fresh perspective on now that you didn't a year ago? Another is, what is your contribution to what you complain about? Mm. Uh, another is, what was your biggest surprise this year, and what assumptions that you have does this reveal? And then another, uh, what are you taking for granted that you could more consciously appreciate? Because <laughs> I think we all do, and that, you know, I, I love the approach of appreciative inquiry in that regard, because it helps remember to start with what's going well, you know rather than what is the problem, because the problems are hydra-headed, you know. There's always more. (laughs) And so um, there's also a lot going well, usually. (laughs) I love that metaphor of the backpack. Wow. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. And, uh, you know, what you put in your backpack are are your, you know, your responsibilities. And also what you worry about, and it, it's good to articulate those. It's good to keep track of, of that because we can really learn a lot from that kind of, whether you call it journaling or, you know, a, 
of doing a brain dump uh, from time to time. Just see what's up there. It's a very crowded space up there. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and if I could just go ahead and use the, this interval then to uh, to mention a couple other books that I think are really important that I've learned so much from. Most of you are already familiar with the book by uh, Douglas Stone et al. called Difficult Conversations. And I still think it's just it's, it's so short, it's so useful. You can give it to people that you need to have a difficult conversation with. You can give it to your chairs, you know, who you're trying to coach to have more accountability type discussions with their faculty. Um, it's just really a useful book. Yeah, I agree. And then, yeah, and then um, Marshall Goldsmith, I think, is one of the best business writers, and especially for those faculty who are thinking about trying to transition into a greater leadership role, his book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, mm. is a really good one for successful people. I've recommended it to a lot of physicians, and they almost everybody finds it useful. Uh, he talks about the skills that we and strengths that we tend to overdo that in mid-career start getting in our way, and especially for scientists and physicians in leadership roles, the skills that it took you to become a great diagnostician or grant writer are very different from the ones that are going to be required to build a team, right, right, that works together or run a meeting. And he, he really uh, offers a lot of uh, in, uh, wisdom, I think, on that subject. Really, all of his books do. And then Robert Keegan's book, Immunity to Change, is one of the most important books that I've ever read because he really helped us see what our competing commitments are when we have one foot on the, the brake and one foot on the gas. <laughs> and there's lots of different ways that human beings do that. We all tend to have an immunity to change. And uh, there are many other aspects of, of how we can continue to rise to the occasion as our world gets more and more complex rather than defending ourselves against it or, at, like, at my age, it's so easy to become nostalgic about how much easier things used to be. And Keegan's work really helps us keep moving toward those challenges. <laughs> and then Krista Tippett, I know many of you are probably familiar with her her work from NPR, her book on Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living. I just love that book. She has interviewed some of the most wise people on the planet over her years, and she synthesizes in this book, Becoming Wise, uh, a lot of what she's observed about human nature and how we can all keep growing, keep learning from each other. So those are, oh, and David White, <laughs> it's uh, W-H-Y-T-E, he wrote a wonderful book called The Three Marriages. And even if you're not married, it's a useful book. He talks about how each of us really is married to our relationships, our key relationships, to our work and to ourselves. And the idea is how do we keep those in conversation with each other? They're not separate commitments, but they're different ways of expressing how we belong in the world, right? So it's the concept of balance, I've never found that useful, and he really helped me understand why I never found that useful. 
because each of these commitments that we have to ourselves, to our work, and to our, our key significant others, they're non-negotiable. And we, we need them to stay in healthy conversation. So I, I found uh, all, I, all of his work also I find so inspiring. Oh, my gosh. This is... This has been a jam-packed session. I feel like this is like a, a private slash public <laughs> but, coaching session for everybody around the world oh, that's been listening two, to this podcast. And two, thank you, Kim. Oh, gosh. Uh, two things I just really want to remind my uh, beloved <laughs> GFA colleagues, many of whom I've never met, <laughs> um, about is that you can't measure the good that you do. You know, I know all of you are always trying to do short-term evaluations of skills that you're trying to nurture that really are long-term skills, and we're all pressed to do these short-term evaluations that never really reveal the good that you do, and you just can't measure it. You have to just believe that even when people, not nearly as many faculty can show up for the programs or take advantage of the great mentoring programs, that you offer, um, that the people who do come, they are getting a lot out of it, that they wouldn't have learned uh, if you hadn't put all the work into offering <laughs> the, the program. So don't get discouraged. And, and I just also want to um, applaud you, Kim, for all the work you're doing there and your, your work to build community with the emeritus faculty there, making their wisdom accessible to the junior faculty. I was just so impressed by that when I was there. It's such a wise use of human resources, what you're doing. And then, obviously, this program is just terrific. Mm. Just terrific. Thank you so much for your work. Well, Janet, I'm going to try to, for everybody who's listening to this podcast and maybe been freaking out because you have been listing so many resources I want to say that I'll tell you what, friends out there, um, Janet will probably get about a, another 125 requests to visit. She mentioned <laughs> books like Humble Inquiry, Brene Brown on vulnerability, which, by the way, yeah. her her episode, they heard like a TED Talkish kind of presentation is on Netflix. Yeah. I just watched it the other night. It's excellent. Oh. But she yeah. also mentioned difficult conversations. What got you here won't get you there. Immunity to change, becoming wise, and the three marriages. These yeah. Are we, we, not, now, remember, she also said we have these built-in expectation of overcommitment, so now we all have a lot of commitments and <laughs> more books to read. <laughs> but I love but, it. Wow, this has been quite good. the session. There's just been so much in here. We have to have you back and dive deeper into some of these issues. Would, would love to. Would, as, as I mentioned at the beginning, it's been one of the great privileges of my life to have been present at the birth of the Women in Medicine program and the GFA. And um, I'll always be grateful for those opportunities. Oh, so thanks, Kim. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening okay. to Janet Bickle. Get a, um, take a look on the podcast website and get, get in touch with her. And thanks so much for visiting the Faculty Factory. We'll see you next time. Bye now. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement 
in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.